Welcome to the KDB Review Podcast. I'm your host as always, Andy Davis, and this is episode 11 of season 4. Good morning, afternoon or evening to you, wherever you are. I've just had a look, actually, at which countries outside of the UK get the most listens. And top of the list is the USA, which is great. So hello to our American friends. I'd love to hear from you if you want to drop me a line. They are closely followed by Germany and France, so willkommen and bienvenue to them. I promise that at some point in the show, I will ask the way to the train station or the post office. I already know the answer, though, of course. You turn left, turn right, and go over the bridge. The reason I bring up our international listeners is that this week's show is all about changes in EU competition law. Now, please don't touch that button. I promise it's worth listening because it deals with a subject that has been winding up KBB retailers for years, and that's the price of stuff on the internet. The law is changing, and it will be adopted in the UK too, to mean that suppliers can charge different prices for different channels. In other words, the investment you make in them as showroom retailers could now finally be rewarded with a lower price than they're charging their online retailers. We have all the legal background and analysis with top lawyer Stephen Sikin from Fox Williams. But first, if you enjoy the KBB Review podcast, then I need your help to spread the word. Obviously, you get all your colleagues or your industry friends to listen, but it would also be great if you could follow us on your podcast app of choice, such as Apple Podcasts or Spotify. And while you're there, leave us a nice rating and review. Just search KBB Review or one word and you'll find us. The endorsement of others really encourages them to give us a go. Right, let's talk about one of the stickiest of sticky issues in the KBB arena, and that's online retail versus showroom retail, and the legal changes in the pipeline that could be going some way to address it. So, joining me down the line here, we have Steve Seekin, who's the Head of Commerce and Technology at legal firm Fox Williams down here in London. Hello, Steve. Hello, Andy. How are you today, sir? I'm very well. I hope you're well as well. I am doing very well. Thank you very much. Now, this is all about dual pricing. That's the term that we call this, dual pricing. Now, could you assume, Steve, for the sake of the argument, that my legal training is very limited? And could you explain exactly what dual pricing is and what the current law around it is? So dual pricing is offering a price for goods to one channel to market, which is different to a price which is offered to another channel to market. Right, and in this case, we're talking about an online retail versus somebody with a bricks-and-mortar showroom. Yes, yes, we are. And I think it's also worth mentioning at this stage, because it's going to come up, I anticipate, as we go on, that the law distinguishes between what is called active selling and passive selling. Let me go a little bit further. Active selling is when a seller, as it says, actively seeks to sell the goods to a purchaser. An example might be uh, targeted marketing. In contrast, passive selling is when a seller, let's say a retailer, receives an unsolicited inquiry from a consumer. That is, in response to that unsolicited inquiry, that is passive selling. So I mentioned that because I anticipate it's going to come up. Right, okay. So right now, here and now, April 2022, what can suppliers legally do or not do in terms of the prices it charges different channels? Good question. In short, competition law at the moment, that is EU competition law as well as UK competition law, is angled towards trying to certainly support, if not protect, the online channel. Why? 
The answer to the why is that the law we have at the moment was drafted in the late noughties at a time when selling using the online channel was uh, not as prolific as it is today. And the competition authorities, that is to say the EU Commission and in the UK the Competition and Market Authority, considered that the online channel needed to be nurtured or protected in order that it could uh, develop as against the in-store channel. That may sound strange to many retailers, uh, many brick-and-mortar retailers today, uh, but if we go back to the late noughties, that's how it was perceived. As a result of that, where the law is at the moment is that if dual pricing is used and it disadvantages the online channel, then there is an issue because uh, that is starting to result in an infringement of competition law. And we then have to consider whether we're dealing with active selling or passive selling. So if active selling was taking place, if, for example, there were highly targeted emails going out, that would be active selling. We could well be okay in terms of dual pricing there. But usually, when we're talking about the online channel, we're talking about passive selling. The website is sitting there. Or there might be an advertisement which appears on mobile phones or on laptops or in the midst of newspaper articles that someone's reading online. Um, how targeted that is, is an open question. But more often than not, it comes within what is called passive selling. And if as a result of different prices being offered to the online channels or as opposed to the offline channel, in store in other words, if as a result of that online sales are disadvantaged, then that's a restriction on passive selling. And essentially that amounts to what is called a hardcore restriction on competition. Upshot is this. Parties engaged in hardcore restrictions, they can be fined by the Competition and Markets Authority, they can be fined by the EU Commission. The agreement which they enter into, so it's probably agreement between a manufacturer and retailer, that agreement is unenforceable. And lastly, by engaging in what is called a hardcore restriction, the parties involved, manufacturer, retailer, they expose themselves to claims for damages by third parties, aka consumers. So there's a lot there to be careful about. That's the best way of describing it. And that's where the law is at the moment. So in short then, let, let's try and put this in a way that is a hypothetical example. I make dishwashers. Mm-hmm. And I want to sell dishwashers to showroom retailers and I want to sell dishwashers to an on- online retailers. But clearly my showroom retailers invest in the product. They invest space in their, in their valuable showroom to display these products. The law at the moment says I can't charge them less. I can't give them an advantage in their margin because of the current law. That is correct. So that's been the case for 10 years or more. Yep. But there is a big change coming down the line, isn't there? So we know what the current situation is. Outline for us what the changes are going to be. So from 1 June of this year, the law is changing to the extent that dual pricing may be exempt 
from infringing competition law. So, first of all, within the European Union, and I will mention in a moment why I reference the European Union, a product intended to be sold offline will be capable of being sold at a lower price to, for example, a retailer than a product intended to be sold online if the priced difference reflects the difference in investments made or costs incurred in both the in-store and online channels. Therefore, a supplier wanting to reward or incentivize a retailer for its offline sales, its in-store sales, may sell the product at a lower price than the same product is intended to be resold online. I've spoken there about the European Union, and I, dist I distinguish that from the position so far as UK law is concerned. Last month, uh, March, the Competition and Markets Authority closed its consultation period in respect of the change in competition law, which will come into force on 1 June of this year. It is expected that the Competition and Markets Authority will adopt the same position concerning dual pricing as the EU Commission has adopted. And this is because the CMA has recognised the difficulties faced by retailers, high street retailers, in competing with online sellers. Which is the exact opposite of, of how this law was set up in the first place. Correct. Last point to bear in mind is this. I reference the EU. Why? I do understand and appreciate that not many high street retailers will be selling on the equivalent of high streets in the European Union, except, first of all, some will be selling in the Republic of Ireland, and the Republic of Ireland is, although sometimes we perhaps forget it, part of the European Union. It's a member state of the European Union. It is subject to EU law, and therefore a retailer in the Republic of Ireland is subject to EU law, a supplier to a retailer in the Republic of Ireland is subject to EU law. Secondly, we have Northern Ireland, and Northern Ireland represents the centre of a Venn diagram because we have a union of the United Kingdom, England, Wales, Scotland, Northern Ireland, and we have a union of the European Union, which is all 27 member states of the EU, and the centre of that Venn diagram where the two unions overlap is Northern Ireland. The result is that when it comes to Northern Ireland, businesses in Northern Ireland are subject to EU competition law. So if we were to find ourselves in a situation, which I don't think we will when it comes to dual pricing, that the CMA, the Competition and Models Authority, was to adopt a different position to the EU Commission, they could make life very interesting when it comes to dual pricing so far as Northern Ireland is concerned. But I don't, I don't think we're going to get there. I think the CMA is going to adopt what some might call a sensible approach to the situation. So, right, so let's unpick this again. Let's go back to our hypothetical example here. I make dishwashers, and from the 1st of June, 
if I want to incentivize my showroom retailers to, to, to effectively reward them for the time and effort and investment they're putting into me, I can sell that dishwasher to them for less than I could sell it to MrOnline.com. Yeah, that is correct. The supplier of the dishwasher will have freedom to offer preferential prices to the brick-and-mortar retailer over the online retailer. And as I understand it, if I've got this right, with again, with my extensive legal training, it's not just retailers, it's, the, it's any distributors who are in between the manufacturer and the retailer as well. It's effectively any customers of the manufacturer. Correct. Or as I would express it, Andy, it is any, well, as anybody uh, within the supply chain between the manufacturer and the consumer. Yes. Look, there's lots of questions thrown up in my head here, which I'm sure they've, you know, lots of more clever people than me have thought about already. But what guidance is there about what that lower price could be? Because you said it reflects the difference in investments made, which is a very sort of broad, slightly woolly term. So could one effectively price the other out of the market? But if I make those dishwashers, could I sell them to the showroom retailer for 100 quid, but sell them to the online retailer for 1,000 quid? Mm-hmm. I think there are three points to make in response to the question. First of all, manufacturers, suppliers will enjoy greater contractual freedom than they have at the moment. How they choose to use it is going to depend on their assessment of what is the best mix for online and offline channels for their products, and also the bargaining strength of the distributors, the retailers with whom they are contracting for the sale of their dishwashers. That's the first point. Second point. I mentioned before that this is lawful if the price difference reflects the difference in investments made or costs incurred in both the in-store and online channels. So why do I mention that? Because that leads on to the third point, which is this. If somebody felt that they were being priced out of the market in a way which was not reflective of the difference in investments made or costs incurred, in the in-store and online channels, and then they could seek to complain to the Competition and Markets Authority or the EU Commission, arguing that the price differential applied does not properly reflect the difference in investments made or costs incurred in both channels. So my assessment of it as things stand at the moment, uh, in advance of the law coming into force, is that this possibility may well disincentivize suppliers and manufacturers from pricing at such a price that it will price out the online market. Because when you set a price and the price is uh, questioned by the CMA or the EU Commission, you've got to be able to justify it. Now, you've got to come up with something which is credible. And as soon as you are unable to come up with something which is credible, that's when you start being exposed, seriously exposed, to being fined. Right. And I'm guessing, because this is all about margin at the end of the day, isn't it, right? It's about giving showroom retailers a decent margin against online retailers because of the comparative overheads. I'm assuming, of course, that just to clarify it, that the law has not changed. The the manufacturer cannot tell the retailers online or offline what price they should be selling things for. They can 
recommend resale prices. They cannot enforce them. And that's not changing. That is definitely not changing. No. However, having said that, do I think that there is a significant amount of enforcement of recommended resale prices? Yes, I think there is. I think there's a very significant amount. I also think that the CMA and the EU Commission are alert to it. Sometimes they are tipped off. There was a a situation very recently involving a supplier of light fittings that was uh, asked to explain its position, didn't convince the CMA, and the light fitting supplier got fined. That was as a result of a complaint. Sometimes the CMA will actually go out and look at situations and will be in contact with parties to say, please explain why, because we think that what you're doing now is pretty much enforcing resale prices so far as the consumer is concerned. So please explain what you're doing and uh, bear in mind, in effect, we are looking at you. Now, again, this is a very sticky issue for many years, and lots of suppliers, manufacturers have kind of come up with workarounds by having things like selective distribution models. Yes. Is this the end of that, or would this still carry on? Is there still a framework for being able to control what products are available where? I think the selective distribution model, in terms of being predominantly brick and mortar, I think that that will be enhanced by the changes in the law. I would, however, mention that often we see clients, brands, that are engaged in selective distribution. The way in which they go about it is sometimes capable of being challenged, um, not least because uh, selective distribution has as its very heart the idea that one is dealing either with luxury brands or products which are very technical in nature or that a brand is prestigious. And in truth, you need to try and come within either the luxury or highly technical or prestigious nature in order to be able to feel okay about putting in place a selective distribution system. If that isn't the case, if you don't come within one of those uh, three categories, then you're taking a commercial risk. And the commercial risk is that at some point uh, you're going to be challenged about what you're doing, either by the Competition and Market Authority or by the EU Commission. So this dual pricing legal change will go some way to kind of clarify what suppliers can and can't do in in the way the selective distribution is a little bit woolly around the edges. I don't think select distribution itself is fully around the edges. I think that there are brands that engage in select distribution where they could be challenged as to whether the brand is capable of being the subject of the select distribution system. What I also think is that the changes in the law with effect from 1 June will actually support the brick and mortar element of selective distribution systems. I definitely, I definitely think that. Now, the one thing about this that really puzzled me was, how do you know where it's going to go? Many retailers obviously do online and offline. Yes. The idea that all retailers are either one or the other isn't true. There's a great big bit in the middle where people do both. So how do you know where that product is going to go? 
That's a very good question, and it causes me to think of a drama series on, I think it was BBC television, about six years ago, where when the opening credits were rolling, the uh, lead actor would do a voiceover, and the lead actor would say, who do you trust, how do you know? If you ask yourself those two questions, you may keep yourself awake at night, but The essential point is this, and this is something that we have discussed in our group here at Fox Williams, where we're looking at these changes in the law. And we have asked ourselves, how could you, the supplier, be confident as to where your products are going to end up being sold? Good question. And I think part of the answer might be good old fashioned barcodes. That might be the answer. Part of the answer might be using software to monitor websites used by your stockists. I'll come back to that in a moment. It may come down to a simple assessment that really, do I really think, as I'm the supplier, that that particular retailer is selling so much in-store as opposed to online? So uh, essentially giving something a, a sense check. And I mentioned the issue of using software to monitor websites. Great care is needed by a supplier when doing that. There have been instances over the last few years where both the CMA and the EU Commission have uh, looked at such software, particularly where, in truth, it is being used in order to monitor the price at which resellers, retailers, for example, are selling to consumers and it's been done by the suppliers in order in effect to try and enforce resale prices and where this has happened and where the CMA or the EU Commission has identified the use of such a software which I think is called spider software they have been very critical of the suppliers in question very critical indeed and that has in turn Uh, led to, I think, increased fines on the suppliers in question. Is that a very legal explanation of the phrase can of worms there, Steve? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I mean, look, I suppose that the extreme version of this is, if you're a big online retailer, of which there are many, could you open up one or two showrooms somewhere in the country just to get, you could order everything through those two showrooms at a lower price, but they all then go off to a warehouse to be sold online. That is possible. It goes to the issue of, so far as the supplier is concerned, how does it uh, check that something is happening uh, that it expects to happen? In other words, that stock is moving through the advantaged channel from a pricing perspective rather than through uh, the online channel which has not been priced advantageously. In other words, that uh, the reseller is trying to take advantage of the lower price which it buys on the basis it's going to sell in store in order to shift dishwashers, as we were speaking about before, through uh, the online channel. So if there's a 500-square-foot retailer shifting you know, 1,000 dishwashers a week then a red flag is going to go up. A red flag is going to go up. We sometimes, in Fox Williams, we sometimes talk about the sniff test. Does it pass the sniff test? 
uh, or as I mentioned a few minutes ago, giving uh, the situation a sense check, does it does it seem that it makes good sense that this is what is happening? And the situation you've described, a 500 square foot retail unit shifting a thousand dishwashers, hmm, sound, doesn't sound right. The man on the Clapham omnibus, yeah. Yes. And I suppose that is the question here, isn't it? As whenever there's any legal changes... And it sounds great, and it sort of answers a few questions, and it addresses some issues. But I think the the question everyone always wants to know is, how is it going to be enforced? How is it going to be policed? Who can I complain to? How likely is it that that complaint will be upheld? Is it going to take years to go through a legal process? How is this going to actually be enforced? Good question. Here in the UK, we're expecting the CMA to provide some guidance between now and 1 June. Certainly, I'm hoping they're going to provide some guidance. I think that apart from the guidance, it is going to be policed and therefore enforced in the following way. I think that uh, retailers who feel that they have been disadvantaged, if they feel strongly enough about it, they may well be able to entrap suppliers We use increasingly communication, which is capable of being tracked, it's capable of being monitored, Uh, exchanges of emails, exchanges of uh, WhatsApp messages. Those can uh, look innocent, uh, but a pattern can emerge. And uh, certainly it is the case that the CMA and the EU Commission are good at spotting patterns and asking questions questions which suppliers, manufacturers often would rather avoid answering. So that that works. So we can expect, I think, uh, monitoring uh, effectively, not self-policing, it's uh, policing by the market, the the retail market, where they feel, where retailers feel they've been disadvantaged. We can expect that uh, both the EU Commission and the CMA may well seek to make examples of uh, particular uh, suppliers in order to encourage others to toe the line. We've seen that before. I wouldn't rule it out going forward when it comes to the concept of dual pricing. And possibly we will see consumer media programs, whether it's on television, whether it's online, whether it's on radio, start to dig around the edges to see what is uh, happening. All of which I think will perhaps I'm being naive, I hope not, but all of which I expect will lead to uh, suppliers more often than not at least thinking about what they're doing before they do it and then uh, hopefully abiding by the law in this area. Well, and I'll assume there'll be the first big test case that comes out for it will be watched with eagle eyes by your profession, I'm sure. Absolutely. And certainly what we have seen in the last few years, both in the EU and in the UK, are are the competition authorities being very rigorous in upholding the law, holding businesses to account. Once that happens, you've got a heightened profile with uh, each of the authorities. And uh, that heightened profile itself should serve as a warning signal before starting to go down a path where you are infringing competition law because the the price involved in terms of fines, in terms of wasted management time, in terms of having to spend time and money with your lawyers generally is really worth it. 
Well, look, Steve, I've got a feeling this one's going to run and run. And as we say, that first big test case when it comes along, I mean, from my point of view, I hope it's in the kitchen and bathroom industry (laughs) because, you know, that's going to make my life a lot easier. But again, this is addressing a thing that's been around for a very long time, niggling in the back of everyone's minds. Will this solve it overnight? Probably not. But is it going in the right direction to support those showroom retailers? Absolutely. I agree with you. I think it is going in the right direction to provide support for brick and mortar. It is an important part of the overall retail industry. But I also think, Andy, that irrespective of which part of the retail industry that the first uh, test case arises, the implications for it will apply across the board. So it doesn't necessarily have to happen in your industry. It could happen in a completely different industry. But once it happens and the ground rules are established, uh, either by the EU Commission or by the Competition and Markets Authority, you can bet that others, irrespective of the industry in which they're retailing, others will pay attention. Well, look, Steve, this is going to run and run. So when, when that test case comes along, we'll get you back on to pick it to bits for us. But until then, thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much indeed. So there we are. Huge thanks to Stephen Seekin there. Half an hour's free legal advice for you. We're nothing if not generous here at the KBB Review Podcast. And could this whole legal change go somewhere to fix the imbalance of internet pricing? The principle is there, I guess. It's certainly there. So who knows? As with all these legal changes, the proof will be in the pudding, and who knows how that pudding will taste, or whether you can still get that pudding cheaper on the internet. I don't know. If I'm honest, I'm now just thinking about pudding. Don't forget to follow us on your podcast app of choice and leave us a nice rating and review and I might save you some custard. See you next week.